There is a gate we know full well that stands twixt heaven and earth and hell where many for a passage venture yet very few are fond to enter. Although tis open night and day they for that reason shun this way both dukes and lords abhor its wood they can't come near it for their blood. What other way they take to go Another time I'll let you know, yet commoners with greatest ease can find an entrance when they please. The poorest hither march in state, where they can never pass the gate, like Roman generals triumphant, and then they take a turn and jump on If gravest parsons here advance, they cannot pass before they dance, there's not a soul that does resort here, but strips himself. To pay the porter. This is the Memento Mori Oracle Podcast, where I, Claire Goodchild, discuss the history, lore, and symbolism. Of the images depicted in the cards of the Memento Mori Oracle deck. On a traffic island just between Oxford Street and Park Lane, next to London's Marble Arch, rests a tribute to another gateway from days past. The circular stone embedded in the concrete says, The site of the Tyburn Tree. Tyburn, which means place of the elms, was not actually a tree at all, but a spot used for the execution of felons for over 500 years. Over 50,000 men, and some women, were hanged in this place that stood as a passage between heaven, earth, and hell. Many different gallows and gibbets stood at this site, but the one known as THE Tyburn Tree, or the Triple Tree Gallows, or the very cute, never-green tree, stood the longest and was erected in 1571 during the reign of Elizabeth I. This deadly scaffold was constructed using three large beams for the legs with a triangular top and was capable of hanging up to 24 people at once. The elm was known as the Tree of Justice, and the origins of this use undoubtedly comes from the Celtic lore of elms being passageways to the underworld. Though other factors surely played a role in the choosing. There are strong trees that grow well in the British Isles and can withstand a lot of damage from the elements and from the weight of hanging men. During the time that Tyburn was used as a place for execution, It was not part of the city of London, but it was close enough that people could come and watch. Prisoners from the infamous Newgate Jail would be brought to the gallows 12 times a year to meet their fate. Thanks to the journal of Samuel Pepys, we have a good picture of what happened in a typical Tyburn hanging day. Samuel was present on January 21, 1664, when Colonel James Turner was executed. So, for starters, the day was a public holiday. This was so as many spectators as possible were able to attend. 
keep in mind, most of the poor working class people wouldn't normally have had the luxury of a day off, but the law wanted to make sure that they were witnesses to their socioeconomic peers being killed. See, the death penalty was brought back into law in the 12th century, and it was the hope of the crown that having the citizens watch other people be brutally executed, that it would deter crime. Though, it could be argued that it didn't scare the onlookers so much as it did excite them. The ceremonial affair would begin in the morning at Newgate, where those who were to be hanged that day would be taken to a room to have their shackles removed and hands and legs bound with rope. Then, they would await the cart that would deliver them to the tree. When all the prisoners were ready to be transported, the bell of St. Sepulchre's Church would ring out to declare the procession had begun. Crowds would have been gathering along the road to Tyburn and at the site itself since dawn, and they would be growing more and more impatient and aggressive. Upon arrival, the convicts would be allowed time to say some last words. Being hanged at Tyburn was a chance for people to share their story, or their religious beliefs, or political views. This tradition lives on today, as just a stone's throw from the site of Tyburn is a place known as Speaker's Corner, where people can go to give impassioned speeches about politics and other hot topics. The method of hanging at the Triple Tree, as far as I can tell, was the short drop, which was actually a death by strangulation rather than the quicker long drop, which was neck-breaking. The cart would be placed underneath the gallows, a rope was then tied around the condemned's neck, and then the cart, which was pulled by horses, would walk forward, leaving the person to hang and slowly suffocate. Mob mentality and the show of it all was quite thrilling to our medieval counterparts, who didn't have much of a break from daily life. It sounds morbid, but we haven't really changed much in terms of entertainment even if most countries have outlawed capital punishment once again. Though written accounts vary on how long the body was left to hang, after about an hour, it was brought down and either buried in a pit next to the gallows, or beheaded and then the rest of the body was split into quarters and displayed as a warning. Sometimes the body was transferred to a gibbet, which is a metal cage suspended in the air and left on display somewhere in the city. It wasn't uncommon for fights to break out over parts of the body and items of clothing. You see, it was believed that these things held restorative or magical properties. Certain sections of the noose were said to cure health problems, while others were believed to aid in gambling and to bring luck. Touching the corpse's hand, or better yet, rubbing it on your physical ailments, was said to help cure you. England was a pretty wild place. The severed hands of thieves were made into a candle charm by local witches or cunning women, and it was known as the Hand of Glory in both Britain and Ireland. Living criminals would light it to send the occupants of a home into a deep sleep so they could burgle it. Some of these hands still exist today, and seeing one is definitely on the top of my personal bucket list. Now, though I just mentioned that people fought over items, technically the possessions of the body belonged to the executioner to either sell or keep for himself. 
Being an executioner was an awful job that very few people were willing to perform, and to make matters worse, they were looked down upon by the rest of society. Sometimes they were convicts themselves and not really granted the option on whether they accepted the position or not. Their treatment is such a prime example of human behavior. Here were these men who filled a job that few would take on. Then people would come and watch and revel in the deaths, all while shunning the executioner in daily life. And they were paid very little on top of it. So as you can see, selling the items would help supplement their wages. If you were sentenced to death between the years 1663 and 1686, you could only hope that your execution wouldn't be performed by one man in particular, John Ketch, who eventually went by Jack, so I will refer to him as Jack from here on out. Though I've only been talking about Tyburn in this episode, which was the place for hangings, it's worth noting that beheadings and burnings also took place all over England, both in and out of cities. You'd probably find it more difficult to locate a spot in London that hadn't seen a dead body than one that did. Jack Ketch was mostly alright if you were to be hanged, but if your sentence was to be beheaded, you were in big trouble. You see, Jack was so hideously incompetent with his axe that he botched many executions, often resulting in more painful deaths. His name would go on to be synonymous with screwing up, and he was even immortalized in the puppet show Punch and Judy. Shout out to my Patreon listeners who know what macabre marionette that is. The most famous example of his butchery was when he attempted to execute Lord Russell, who was a wealthy politician sentenced to death for his involvement in a plot to replace the king with the Duke of Monmouth, James Scott. It was said he paid Jack a substantial amount of money to make it quick. In the end, the Lord suffered a complete butchering and a terribly painful death. When the Duke himself was set to be executed by Jack Ketch two years later, he was gravely concerned about the sharpness of the axe and was recorded as saying, Here are six guineas for you, and do not hack me as you did my Lord Russell. I have heard you struck him four or five times. You strike me twice. I cannot promise you that I will not stir. The first swing Jack took resulted in just a flesh wound on the neck of the disgraced man. So he stood up looked the executioner in the eye and let out an exasperated sigh. While, shaking his head disappointingly, he kneeled back down and rested his head upon the block once again. It would take another five strokes of the axe before Jack was forced to use a knife to completely sever James' head. Of course, there are theories that Jack was given bonuses by the higher-ups to make certain deaths more painful or to extort money from his victims, but I'm slightly skeptical as he was almost killed himself by the mob for his botched executions. He was also shunned by society even more than other executioners. It was quite a risk to be taking, but I can appreciate that poverty and desperation are powerful forces. Another executioner who made a few mistakes was John Thrift, but I think most people have some sympathy for him. Not much is known about his life prior to being employed at Tyburn, but I did read somewhere that he was a murderer, though he was pardoned, so maybe he didn't commit it, I don't know. 
John was completely illiterate and relied heavily on his wife to help him with any written communication he may have received. So he might not have had any skills whatsoever, so taking the job as an executioner might have been the best thing he could get. He ended up being the resident hangman of Tyburn in the mid-1700s. John was a very nervous man and absolutely hated his job of hanging people on the tree. One account claims he was once so nervous about the crowd watching him that he forgot to cover the faces of 13 men and they strangled with their eyes fixated on those of the people across the field. Other than that incident, he seemed to do just fine at Tyburn, though he never quite adjusted to what he had to do. John was sent into a complete panic the day he was tasked to perform the beheading of two Jacobite rebels at London's Tower Hill. Before the first could take place, he took one look at the man to be killed by him, and then the angry mob, and promptly fainted. John was given a few minutes to collect himself and offered wine to calm his nerves, though that didn't help much. When the Earl of Kilmarnock laid his head on the block, John burst into tears, and this resulted in the condemned man comforting his executioner, encouraging him to do his job and kill him swiftly. If it wasn't so unbelievably heartbreaking, it could be seen as funny. I don't know why that pulls on my heartstrings so much, but it does. I really feel for John Thrift, and I hope he was eventually able to find some sort of peace before his death. In 1752, it became law that the judges could decide whether a body would be sent to the gibbet for display, buried in the pit, or sent to Surgeon's Hall to be dissected. Advancements were being made in Britain with medicine and surgery, but not getting a Christian burial was a big concern for many people. The burial pit was obviously the best option, because at least you were in the ground. Contracted body runners were employed by both the families of the deceased and the surgeons hoping to get their cadaver for the next lecture. The job of these runners was to get the body by any means necessary, regardless of what the law said. And not only did they have to worry about each other, they had to fight off the mob of spectators. The most well-known example of one of these brawls was over the body of Honest Jack Shepard, who was an infamous thief. He had successfully escaped from prison six times, and two of those times were from Newgate. Before his hanging, Jack's friends had assured him that they would get his body and take him to the doctor with the hopes of being revived. There are instances where a person would be hanged until they were unconscious and not dead, but there was no real way to actually plan that. I truly believe that they thought it would be possible as he had managed to cheat so many other circumstances in his short life already. On November 16th, in the year 1724, over 200,000 people arrived at Tyburn to see him be hanged. I can't even begin to fathom how overwhelming that would have been for Jack, and perhaps the crowd even gave him a boost in confidence, convincing himself that he would pull off his greatest trick ever. Unfortunately, after being hanged, his body was cut down as usual and the crowd rushed him. The runners his friends had hired to collect his body weren't able to reach him. The mob thought they were hired by the surgeon's college and wouldn't let them near. Whether he was still alive during all this, it's something we can't really know. 
but he subsequently was ripped apart in the process. The last execution at Tyburn was November 3, 1783. While we know a lot about what happened thanks to publications that recorded the deaths, there are so many more secrets that this spot holds. At the start of the episode, you heard a poem by Irish writer Jonathan Swift called On the Gallows, which I personally believe was inspired by Tyburn. Not just because he had written about the tree before, but because there seems to be a few clues sprinkled in the verses. So hit rewind, give it another listen, and let me know what you think. This has been the Memento Mori Oracle Podcast, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Special thanks to Stephen Dalton, who is an actor from Dublin, for his rendition of On the Gallows. Just a quick reminder that the special pre-order price for the second printing of the Memento Mori Oracle deck ends on September 25th. You can find all the information you need to order and the show notes for this episode on blackinthemoon.com.